Hold fast, press on, keep in the way, believe He is faithful, strive to rest. I love that last phrase, strive to rest. Last week uh, I began to, my sermon by telling you about uh, this man. Who's this man again? Charles Wesley. Andy, who's this man look like? Looks like a Quaker Oats guy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Looks like the Quaker Oats guy. <laughs> anyway, Charles Wesley um, strove to rest. He strived and strived and strived to find his rest in Jesus Christ. But it was, it was difficult for him. Charles Wesley, the 18th child of Susanna Wesley, grew up in a pastor's home in college, was zealous for the Lord, forming an accountability group and efforts to keep him and his, his friends serving God every hour of the day, every day of their lives, fasted, prayed regularly, read his Bible often, went into ministry. After his ministry, he set out for Georgia, from England to Georgia on evangelistic crusade and and after continuing, after returning to England, he continued on his ministry, teaching and, and preaching and visiting people, and he was not saved. Only after severe illnesses threatened his life did Charles Wesley find peace with God. He strove to rest, finding his peace with God. It was a Sunday morning, May 21st, 1738, Charles Wesley's own day of Pentecost. I, I, I read this for you last week, but it bears repeating. In his journal, he wrote, The Spirit of God strove with my own and chased away the darkness of unbelief. I found myself convinced. I knew not how nor when. I, I found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in hope of loving Christ. I saw that by faith I stood. I went to bed still sensible of my own weakness, yet confident of Christ's protection. And Charles Wesley went on for many years following after Christ, ministering to many, and he continues to minister today through his hymns that he wrote. Well, this morning I want to tell you about this man. Who is this man? His brother, John Wesley. His, his older brother, John Wesley. And I tell you his story because his story is much the same. He also strove to rest as well. He was born there four years before Charles was. It makes him four years older. He was the 15th child in the family. Charles was the 18th, so there were two in between. They both were very bright students. Attended Oxford, both of them both serious about their, their Christian life. Both were part of that accountability group that Charles had formed on the campus where they urged others to live a holy life. And in fact, this group gained some sort of notoriety that people despised them and called them the Holy Club. Oh, you guys are part of that Holy Club. Do you know who else was a part of that, that club? Do you know who this guy is? Who knows who this guy is? Okay. Um, 1740s. Perhaps the greatest evangelist the world has ever known. You don't... George Whitfield is who that was. He was part of this holy club. I mean, that's, that's pretty high, high company they're keeping. Anyway, John and Charles were, were both ordained in the ministry, and they both went on that evangelistic trip to Savannah, Georgia. Now, I, I didn't mention this uh, when I told you about that trip last week because um, it really didn't affect um, Charles, but it affected John greatly. That, that on the way across the ocean, they, they hit a storm. That, that rocked them both back and forth, and seemingly at, at any moment they felt like the boat was going to sink. And, and John Wesley was terrified. On that boat were some German Moravians who, in contrast to John Wesley, were perfectly at peace. Instead of fearing death at sea, they, they sang hymns of praise to God, and they trusted in the sovereign Lord to sustain them. And when Wesley asked, then, then why are you so confident? They responded this, we are neither afraid for ourselves nor for our children, because they trusted themselves in the hand of the sovereign God. This was one of John Wesley's first insights in the state of his own soul. They arrived in uh, America on Friday, February 6, 1736, and the very next day, John Wesley met one of those Moravian pastors 
who was ministering in Georgia at the time. All these Moravians were coming over and they, they surely knew this man. And, and here's a picture of this man. Anyone know who this is? None of you know who this guy is. All right. His name? August Sotlieb Spagenberg. German Moravian. And this man was receiving Wesley sort of into their ministry there in Savannah, Georgia, and was inquiring him a little bit. And this is what Wesley recorded in his journal about the conversation that Mr. Spangenberg had with him. My brother, I must first ask you one or two questions. Have you the witness within yourself? This is Spangenberg talking to Wesley. Have you the witness within yourself? Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? And Wesley writes, I was surprised, and I knew not what to answer. He observed it and asked, do you know Jesus Christ? I paused and said, I know he's the Savior of the world. True, replied he, but do you know that he has saved you? I answered, I hope he's died to save me. He only added, do you know yourself? Wesley said, I do. And then he confessed in his journal, adding the comment, but I fear these were vain words. These words that Wesley wrote in the, in the journal were not retrospect, but they were written right, right then, not years later about, well, those are vain words. No, they were written right then. He, he knew that he wasn't saved. He knew he hadn't experienced the Holy Spirit in his life. Though he'd been ordained, and though he'd traveled from England to Georgia to evangelize the new world, And this especially became evident to him in his journey back across the Atlantic Ocean, back to England, because again, they encountered another storm that that troubled his heart. And he said in his journal on January 24th, 1738, he said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay, and believe myself while no danger is near. But let death look me in the face and my spirit is troubled, nor can I say to die is gain. A few days later, still on the ship, Wesley wrote, It's now two years and almost four months since I left my native country in order to teach the Georgian Indians the nature of Christianity. But what have I learned myself in the meantime? Why? What? I the least of all suspected that I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. And a short time after Wesley landed in America, he, he went to visit his brother uh, at Oxford. And he wrote in his journal on Saturday, March 4th, 1738, I, I was clearly convinced of unbelief and the want of that faith whereby alone we're saved. And, and Wesley was striving. He was battling. He wasn't content with this. He knew full well that, that his soul was in peril and in danger. And Wesley just battled his mind. He, he really said to himself, well, how can you, John Wesley, preach to others who have not faith yourself? And so he ran to this man again. You remember this guy's name from last week? Bowler, Bowler, right. Good job. Peter, I still haven't figured out how to say his name exactly. Peter Bowler. Well, we're just calling him Bowler, all right? Peter Bowler. I was hoping Dirk would be here today. I could talk to him. I was going to before the service. He's not here today. So he's Mr. Bowler. Remember, he was instrumental in the conversion of Charles Wesley. He was a, a Moravian. Made this impact on the ship over. Made his impact there in Georgia. Made impact as well. And uh, he was talking to Bowler about, shall I preach to others? Shall I stop preaching? What should I do? And Bowler said, don't, don't stop preaching. He said, what can I preach? He said, preach faith till you have it. And then because you have it, you will preach that faith. And I'm not sure that's really great advice and counsel, but that's what he gave. He said, yeah, yeah, I know you're unbelieving, but just preach faith and you'll get it. And then you'll be able to really preach it. That was his counsel. The next Monday, right after that, he said, I preached this new doctrine, though my soul started back from the work. And the first person whom I offered salvation by faith alone was a prisoner under sentence of death. And if you continue reading in his journal, you just find that he's out preaching. He's out preaching faith, although he doesn't really believe it. But he wants to believe it. There's his striving. He wants to believe. He wants to. He's preaching what he wants to believe. It's not quite there. About a month and a half later, he encountered Bowler again, and he said, "What well, should I stop preaching others?" And there's some insight into John Wesley. He says, "No, no, no. Don't hide in the earth the talent God has given you. 
You know, there's Bowler saw John Wesley, just immensely talented guy. Well, about a month later, John Wesley went to visit his sick brother, Charles. And on Saturday, May 20th, 1738, he and some friends spent Saturday night in prayer. And that following Sunday morning, Wesley heard Dr. Halen preach what's called, he called a truly Christian sermon. That is a a sermon where Christ was at the center of it. Acts 2, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What the Spirit works in people, not what you do yourself. And that afternoon, you remember, that afternoon would be May 21st, 1738. Remember what happened on May 21st, 1738? Charles was sick. John was visiting Charles. He became a Christian. And, and John Wesley heard that his brother in his journal had found rest to his soul. He strove, he strove, he found rest to his soul. That's the story I told you last week. And over the next few days, the next three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, John Wesley said, I had continual sorrow and heaviness in my heart. And then the light broke through. May 24th, 1738, just three days after Charles was converted, John Wesley awoke at five in the morning he opened his Bible to Second Peter 1.4. There are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, even that ye should be partakers of the divine nature. He also read Mark 12.34. Think about this. Just turning in. Uh, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In the afternoon, he was asked to go to St. Paul's church where Psalm 130 was sung. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there's steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm 130 was on his mind in the afternoon. And here's what he wrote about his activities in the evening. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. Remember, Charles was impacted by Luther's um, commentary to the Galatians. Anyway, there's just this gathering where they just gathered together. <laughs> they, they opened Luther's commentary on Romans, and, and they were right there even at the preface. And he says about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. At age 34, after much striving, John Wesley was finally born again. The next day he wrote in his journal, The moment I awakened, Jesus' master was in my heart and in my mouth, and I found all my strength lay in keeping my eye fixed upon him and my soul waiting on him continually. Being again at St. Paul's in the afternoon, I could taste the good word of God in the anthem which began, My song shall be always of the loving kindness of the Lord. And you, you see here the, the, the disposition that changed, right? When the Spirit came upon John Wesley, instantly there was this, yes, Jesus, you are my master. I will do anything. And there was a willingness that the Spirit strengthened him to do that. And, and Wesley's trust in Christ would last his entire life. And uh, he, this man was tireless. I mean, he would be on horseback and go and preach to all these towns, um, even across America. So I remember just preaching and getting on his horseback and riding and preaching again and preaching again. That's why, and, and he set a model for many horseback ministries. That's why in every small town you'll see, even dotted across our countryside, you see these Methodist churches, Methodist churches. Method, that's where the, the horse riders, the preachers, they stopped at all these different places all along the way. And John Wesley really became the founder of the Methodist church. He was methodical in his Christianity, in his holy club days, right? Really methodical, asking himself questions, really pursuing the Lord Interesting, I was talking to Heidi Underhill last week after a sermon, and she said, interesting that John Wesley would not be welcome in his own church. The Methodist church has strayed so far. 
One man estimates, and Wesley was tireless, that he preached 40,000 sermons during his lifetime. 40,000. Now, that might be short sermons or devotionals or whatever, but that's like three a day for 40 days. Tireless. Now, I tell you the story of John, of John Wesley because that's what we see in our text this morning. We see a group of, of zealous men seeking the Lord but not saved, ignorant to the Holy Spirit until Paul came and told them of Jesus. Um, which, by the way, sounds a lot like our text last week, does it not? Apollos, mighty in the Scriptures, preaching righteousness but not saved until Priscilla and Aquila come along to tell them of Jesus. But I, I thought telling these conversion stories of Charles Wesley and John Wesley just right together are, are, great, uh, are great bookends, are, are great illustrations just of these two men who are, are just tied together because um, they're, so, they're so similar. And, and the text I preached last week is similar to the text I'm preaching this week. It's like the same message, deja vu, because Charles Wesley and John Wesley had so much the, the similar experience. In fact, most preachers I listened to to in preparation for this text as I listen to, you know, I've got about 20 different preachers and I just kind of listen to their sermons. I don't take a lot of notes on them, but just kind of take in kind of what they're saying, audible commentaries, if you will. Most of these preachers who preach through Acts preach last week Apollos and these men in Ephesus together because they see it's one. They see the same. I said, you know what? We're not in a hurry here. Let's just preach them twice. Let's tell the story of Charles Wesley and John Wesley. People godly, righteous, but yet unsaved, they didn't have the Spirit of God. And, and I just say this, right? There are lots of people in this life who look like they are saved, and they are not. Lots of people, particularly maybe grow up in church, have a measure of righteousness, a measure of zeal in their life, attend church and Bible studies. From all outward appearances, they look pretty good. But inwardly, all is not well because they're not saved. They're not trusting in Christ alone. It's not faith that has saved them. Underlying it's they're trusting in other things like <clears throat> their own righteousness or their own church attendance or their own commitment to serve church or their own generosity to give to the Lord's work. But none of these things save a soul. <clears throat> it's in Jesus alone that salvation is found. Do you remember the book of Acts when Peter was preaching to the religious leaders? He said there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name given um, from heaven among men by which we must be saved. Only in Jesus, and only faith in Jesus. It's no accident that John and Charles Wesley were converted by Galatians and Romans, these two books of the Bible that set forth justification by faith alone. Well, so let's read our text after that long introduction. Acts chapter 19, uh, we're looking this morning at verses 1 through 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Now, the title of my message this morning is, There is a Holy Spirit. It comes from verse 2 of, of, our, of our text here, where these disciples respond that we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And I'm saying there is a Holy Spirit. A Holy Spirit who will come and change and transform us and witness to it. Remember what uh, the conversation that um, John Wesley had when he first arrived. Right? The, the pastor, I forget, Spangleberg. Right? He just said, is the Spirit of God witnessing to you and your spirit? Like, is the Spirit of God in you telling you that you're a believer in Jesus? And just, it's interesting, as you look at their, their testimonies, how much the Holy Spirit was just, was just through and through. Um, just e even the morning, right? That Sunday morning when Charles Wesley was converted, John heard this truly Christian sermon about the Holy Spirit fell upon them all. Just longing for the Spirit to come, and when the Spirit came, it transformed them and their whole attitudes, their mindsets, their perspective. They say there is a Holy Spirit. 
Well, to get our per- perspective this morning, I-, I think first we need to look at the orientation. I just, it's a word just to hang your thoughts on, orientation. I, I want us to orient ourselves to where we are in-, in the book of Acts. Paul is on his third missionary journey. Uh, like his other missionary journeys, this one began in Antioch in Syria. Um, Acts chapter 18, verse 23. If you write in your Bibles, I would encourage you to third missionary journey. It's without much fanfare. He just left. And it says, after spending some time there in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. And, and that's pretty much the, the, the course he took, just right across Cilicia into Galatia and Phrygia, just kind of traveling right across there. We, we have very little known about what was taking place there. He's probably there strengthening the churches, strengthening the disciples. That means he was visiting these places. It's always did, right? He went out and he preached, evangelized, and went back again, he went back again, and went back again. How the importance of missions and visiting and strengthening. And now in Acts chapter 19, verse 1, we find that he passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. So the inland basically means he didn't come to Ephesus by way of sea. He came across the land into Ephesus. And that's where the events of last week's text took us. It took us to Ephesus with Apollos, but he's left, as verse 1 tells us, that Apollos was at Corinth. Now, what's interesting here is in is Paul's travels to Ephesus and how eventually even he got there. Right? Do you remember on his second missionary journey how he attempted to go to Ephesus? It doesn't say Ephesus, but it says Asia. It says Acts 16, verse 6, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having forbidden, been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, in the ancient world, Asia didn't mean China, Japan. Asia meant Asia Minor, just right there where Ephesus is. It meant Turkey, if you will. Um, southwestern Turkey is where Asia was. And he was prevented, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Ephesus the first time. And that was God's plan in leading the life of Paul. It wasn't that there were people in Ephesus who needed, didn't need to hear the gospel, though there were. In fact, these 12 men here in Acts 19 are people who needed to hear the gospel. But in, in, in the plan of God, not now. They didn't need to hear the gospel now. And then you remember on Paul's second missionary journey, how he actually visited in Ephesus? It's, it's in Acts 18, beginning of verse 19. It says that they came to Ephesus and he himself, as Paul, went into the synagogue, he reasoned with the Jews, Acts 18.20. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus back to Jerusalem and back up to Antioch. The timing still wasn't right for him to spend a lot of time in Ephesus. But now in Acts 19, on the third missionary journey, we find that indeed it is God's will that Paul come back and return to Ephesus. And he's going to spend a long time there. In fact, he's going to spend more than three years in Ephesus. Uh, We're going to find Ephesus dominating Acts chapter 19, and we're going to see him coming back in the end of chapter 20, um, talking with the elders at at Ephesus. And I think really the application is simple. I've made this before. But if you're seeking to share the gospel, you have a heart to share the gospel with those around you, don't fret when things don't just quite work out. Right? If you're trying to meet with someone and they're scheduling conflicts, keep getting in the way. Don't worry. Like Paul wanted to go to Ephesus. He wanted to go to Asia, but was prohibited. He's like, okay. And then he was there. He just began ministry. Lots of fruitful ministry. But he said, not now because I got other responsibilities. And if you're trying to meet with someone and the conversation doesn't go quite right or someone else is present, which makes an awkward environment to share the gospel with or to speak spiritual things about, don't fret. Just trust the Lord that if God wills, there'll be a time when you can go back to your Ephesus with a clear opportunity to share the gospel when he opens a door of opportunity. So, so pray for opportunities. And when those opportunities to be my witness, as Jesus says, come and present themselves, walk through the door. Right? You've trusted the Lord in your salvation. Are you going to trust the Lord with your evangelism? Well, anyway, that's our, our orientation. We, we see Paul set out on his third missionary journey, lands in Ephesus according to the will of God. And we read in verse 1 that he found some disciples. At this point, my second word is that Paul begins his investigation. 
basically he's investigating these disciples, trying to figure out who they are and, and what they believe. And are they believers in Jesus or not? Not so much unlike the conversation that uh, Mr. Spangenberg had with John Wesley when he arrived in Georgia. When he inquired of John Wesley's faith, this is similar to what Paul is doing here. And the, the conversation with Paul and these disciples sounds remarkably like that conversation that Spangenberg had with uh, John Wesley. He said in verse 2, Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Now at this point, we see what is meant in verse 1 when they are merely identified as disciples. They were disciples of John the Baptist, the one who came to Judea preaching in the wilderness and baptizing people in the Jordan rivers. They confessed their sins. Now, It's interesting here, you think about how far away they are from the Jordan River in Jerusalem. They're hundreds of miles away, 700 miles away, something like that. And and for them, they probably weren't in Judea and then come to Ephesus. That was probably not the case. Far more likely is that these disciples trace their belief and their practices back to Apollos, who was in Ephesus, right? If you remember from last week, you remember Apollos was in Ephesus, Preaching mightily the way of the Lord, though knowing only the baptism of John. It's interesting here. I didn't talk about this last week, but it is, it is curious. In verse 25, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. Even what I read in John chapter 1 today and Matthew chapter 3, it's the voice of one in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The, the way of the Lord was John's language about how to walk in God's ways, how to, how to make his path straight, how to walk in righteousness. And I suspect these disciples were merely following the the teaching of Apollos. He would have been easy to follow, being an eloquent man. You'd love to listen to him. Being knowledgeable and capable, mighty in the Scriptures, fervent in spirit. Uh, I'm I'm sure these people embraced, these men embraced the message of Apollos and followed in his way of, of following in water baptism according to what Apollos taught. right? Just baptism for repentance. They sought to walk in the way of the Lord. And I have no reason even to realize that, to surmise at all, these are ungodly people. These are, these are righteous people walking in the ways of the Lord. But last week we saw how Priscilla and Aquila took Paul aside, Apollos aside to explain to him the way of God more accurately. That is, right? It's Jesus. Remember, he's, he's preparing the way for the Lord, right? He's preparing the way for Jesus. And Jesus is the Messiah. We need to follow Jesus and not John the Baptist. I mean, John was good in teaching us the ways of the Lord, but Jesus is better bringing us to God through his sacrifice on the cross. Rather than just following in the ways of the rules that God has for us, he brings us to God through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And we know that Apollos embraced the instruction of Priscilla and Aquila. You just read his testimony that Paul wrote for him in 1 Corinthians. He became a mighty Christian preacher, thoroughly Christian, thoroughly preaching the gospel of Christ preaching Christ's righteousness, not our own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith alone. See, now, Apollos had gone to Corinth, and apparently Apollos' newfound understanding in the gospel had not yet reached the ears of all of his disciples, namely these 12 here. But Paul came in to fill the gaps, like 1 Corinthians, right? Remember chapter 3, I quoted that before you were. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? I planted, Paul said. Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. In this case, it was Apollos planted, but Paul came in and he watered, and it was God causing the growth. Now, it's amazing here that they claim never to have heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Verse 2, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. It's amazing because John taught about the Holy Spirit. In every, in every time when John the Baptist talked about early part of his ministry, he said, Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's going to come. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And these disciples of John didn't even know if there's a Holy Spirit. If they knew the baptism of John, they should have known the coming baptism of Jesus, in which the Holy Spirit was coming upon them. Somehow they didn't. And they're not alone. There are plenty of professing Christians in this world who know very little 
about the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. About the changing power that comes upon you when the Holy Spirit comes upon your life. Giving you new desires. Granting you new, new passions. Right? That, that, that God's commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5 verse 3. Right? This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, His commandments are no longer burdensome. They're what you want to carry you out. It's what you do carry out. But you, you desire that. But there, there are many who think that being right with Jesus is really about our commitment to follow the ways of the Lord, right? To be right in the, in the right way, right? To give money or to volunteer for some children's ministry, help those in need, be active in the church, right? I'm a good churchman, I'm doing what I need to do, right? And then when I don't go to church, I feel guilty, right? But I'm go, I'm here at church, I'm not feeling guilty. See, there's a big difference, right? When you, you miss church and you feel guilty, that means you're walking the way of the Lord. You're walking in John the Baptist's way. But when you miss church and you say, oh, I love being at church. I just want to be there with God's people. There's, there's a difference there. You, you miss it out of regret because that's the place you like to be. It's like, oh, man, I wanted to go to Lake this week, but I can't because i got to do this instead. There's a desire that the Holy Spirit brings upon us. It's not this burdensome thing that we got to go to the lake. No, it's so we get to go to the lake. And God's commandments, likewise, become this non-burdensome thing. But there's so many who the commandments of God are all burdensome because they're devoid of the Holy Spirit in their life. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not just following the rules of the Bible. Christianity is explicit. Trust in Christ. He alone is your righteousness. God gives us the Holy Spirit, changes us and transforms us. So 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. We're different. We're new and we're longing and desiring after the ways of God. That's the way to be right with God. To trust in Him and to see His Spirit, experience His Spirit come upon you. So after his investigation, then comes Paul's explanation, verse 4 and 5. Said, Paul said, okay, listen, okay, I figured out enough about you. You're disciples of John, and here's what's wrong. He says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who comes after him. That is Jesus, right? If you're really John's disciples, you're going to follow Jesus is what he is saying here. Um, so interesting here that Paul is speaking with the disciples of John just long enough to discern where their understanding is lacking of the gospel, and he gives them what they need of the gospel. Uh, he, he's saying, okay, if you believe John, you believe in Jesus because John spoke of Jesus. It's a very similar, right? Jesus spoke that in John chapter 5. You think Moses has hot stuff. Okay, but if you believe Moses, you'd believe me because he spoke of me. So all the biblical writers are, are pointing to Jesus in some ways. But just as, as Paul investigated and then explained, I encourage you to do that in your evangelism as well. I encourage you to do that with people. This topic of conversations turns to religion. Put in your detective hat. Be a Sherlock Holmes. And start investigating. Start asking questions. Ask other people what they believe. Let them spout forth their beliefs. You, you're, you're like investigating. You're trying to understand what they believe. Ask them questions about their view of life, their view of the war, their view of the school shooting, the view of abortion. Ask about views of that. Ask them if they even believe in God. Ask them if they've heard of Jesus. There are plenty of people in our culture today who have never heard of Jesus. Ask if they've ever been to church. Ask if they have a Bible. Do they ever read your Bible? Ask them if they, do you know what Christianity is? Do you know what the, the core message of it is? Ask, do you want to be right with God? Like, just ask these sorts of questions. And when you've done enough investigation that you can give an explanation, then give your explanation, right? If people don't believe in God, then show them the glory all around. So just look at your hand. That speaks the glory of God. Look at the stars in the sky. Look at the James Webb telescope, which is in operation like next month. Right, David? Absolutely. Just show the glory of God in ways that we as earth have never seen before. If they haven't heard of Jesus, tell about how he lived 2,000 years ago, how he died upon the cross for our sins. He was the, the sacrificial lamb who died in our place. If they've never been to church, say, are you, are you interested in coming to church? How about you come to my church? Come to Rock Valley Bible Church. 
If they haven't ever read the Bible, ask, do you have a Bible? If they don't have a Bible, take one of these Bibles in your seat in the pew and give it to them. That's okay to do, right? You can steal from the church to give to them because, because if you look inside these Bibles, it says if you don't have a Bible, it's a gift to you. So they don't have a Bible, you can bring it as a gift to them. Absolutely do that. If they don't know the core message of Christianity, give them a brief summary. I like to say it like this. The Bible's not about good people doing good things to work themselves to God. The, the, the Bible is about bad people whom God by His grace redeems through faith and believing in Him. See, God created this perfect world, but as a result of our sin, we've really destroyed it. It brings us to wars and school shootings and abusive children and so many horrific things. But God sent His Son, Jesus, to make things right. And someday He'll make everything right when He returns. He's the perfect judge who's going to judge the world. But you can be right with God yourself by believing and trusting in His sacrifice sufficient for your sins. To be a detective in the hearts of others. Explain what's lacking in their understanding of the gospel. That's what Paul did. For his own investigation, he concluded they didn't know about Jesus. We didn't even know there's the Holy Spirit. Well, you didn't know because you don't know Jesus to trust in Him. Because when you trust in Him, the Spirit will come upon you. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who comes after Him. That is Jesus. Now, I find their ignorance here in Jesus to be quite amazing. You have any idea when these things took place, like date, time? They took place in the early 50s A.D. And I say that because um, when Priscilla and Aquila came to Corinth, they were, as I said, expelled from Claudius of Rome. And through other writings, we know that that he was expelling the Jews maybe 48, 49 A.D., so this is happening after 4849 because Priscilla and Aquila have to uh, get to Corinth to meet Paul and then have to come with him to Ephesus to meet Apollos and have to talk with Apollos and then long enough for Apollos to leave and long enough for Paul then to come back there. So 51, 52, something like that, 53. You realize that's 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. In 20 years, the name of Jesus didn't get to Ephesus. Now, one explanation is that news traveled slow in the ancient world. Took people on foot to travel from place to place to tell them what happened. Not instant access all the way around the world like we have today. Instant video of war in Ukraine. Not like that. Just people walking. But how it happened with Ephesus, this important city in, in Asia, right, one of the important cities of the ancient world, I, I don't know how that didn't happen. Maybe another explanation is that they're simply blind to the working of, of Jesus. Maybe they heard about Jesus, but you know, really didn't really didn't come through. Just really didn't compute because, like, they ha- they have their own theology, their own mindset. They're following John, and even these other things just didn't didn't work. And, and I think this is probably a better explanation: is that they probably heard of Jesus, but didn't never never had anyone connect the dots. Say, oh, that Jesus, that's the one you need to listen to. I was reading this this week of the ministry of a man named Devereux Jarrett, who was ministering in the Americas about the time of the Wesley's, 1760s. So about halfway through their ministry. Um, he came to a church in Virginia and began preaching. And people considered this, this man to be very strange. Um, he, he described what people were calling him. He says, I was called an enthusiast, a fanatic, a visionary, a dissenter, a Presbyterian, a madman, and whatnot. And he summarized what others thought of his preaching. And, and here's, here's what people said. He said, We've had many ministers and have heard many before this man. So in other words, these were church people who were in church a long time. Um, you know, if you know anything about the 1740s in America, you get a lot of exploration. But you got people in towns for a long period of time, lots of people coming in. They said, we've heard many before this man, but never heard anything till now of conversion, the new birth, etc., what an astonishing thing that is. I heard many preachers, lots of preachers come through many, many years, but never until this man came did we hear anything about conversion and new birth, etc. He said, we've never heard that men are so totally lost and helpless that they could not save themselves by their own power and good deeds. And he said, if our good works will not save us, then what will? 
Now, it's not like these people in the 1740s didn't have Bibles. They could look and read about the conversion, the new birth, in John chapter 3, what Jesus speaks about, or 1 Peter chapter 1, speaking about causes just to be born again, or the change that God brings, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, they, they, they could have read about that. They could have read about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit works in people's lives. I think, though, that it's they never experienced it before. They, they never saw it. And so it never connected with them. And maybe that's what those in Ephesus meant by we've not even heard that there's a, a Holy Spirit. They've never experienced the Holy Spirit before, like the Wesley brothers, knowledgeable in the Scriptures, fervent of the Lord, but never experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. Is it really true? Does it really change? Does it really transform? I see others. Okay, well, maybe, but I don't know for myself. Maybe that's the case of these people, but even today, right, there's lots of people who haven't experienced the Holy Spirit in their lives. Jesus said you need to be born again. You need to be born from above, right? You need to be born of the Spirit, is what Jesus said. And there are many professing Christians who know nothing about this. The religion is all about do's and don'ts. They, they, they think it's about, okay, well, I'm, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I'm really ultimately, when I say I believe in Jesus, it means he's my follower. I'm just following what he says. He's a good teacher, just following after those ways. I'm doing good things to get there. Not, not, I believe in Jesus. He died upon the cross for my sins. There's, do you see the difference there? This distinctly Christian, or it's, it's just Jesus in name. And I fear there's so many that just have Jesus in name, miss the role of the Spirit to transform an individual, bring him from darkness to light. So the things of God are desires to his soul. It's so interesting that I think that lots of um, people look for a, a Holy Spirit-empowered church. We've had people, whatever, see our church or talk with me and just say, oh, yeah, you're not Spirit-filled enough. <laughs> I'm like, in other words, they're saying, you're not as exciting enough. You don't have all those dramatic stories. You're not loud enough. You're not, and thinking that that's the Spirit. But the Spirit is the inner change in people that works itself out in fruit in their lives, that creates people who are filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things there's no law. So Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 23, right, the Spirit is in us creating these desires and moving us towards those ways. That's what it means to be Spirit-filled, to be trusting in Christ and the work that he do, He's done because he, he works in us so as to believe and walk those ways. So the Spirit-filled church is the Christ-centered church, the gospel-focused church. Well, we, we see in verse 5, then, Paul speaking to these people about the Holy Spirit upon hearing that, that they, they didn't know. He said, you need Right, that you need to believe in the one who's to come, that is Jesus. Verse five, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now there's some things you gotta fill in here a little bit that, that Paul said in verse four, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one coming after him, that's Jesus, and on hearing this, they were baptized. No, on hearing this, they believed. They believed in Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit. They followed in obedience in baptism. You know, that's a genuine sign of the working of the Spirit of God in the life of a believer, right? When, when you hear the Word, you respond to the Word. Not fighting against the Word, not trying to find some way around the world, the Word. In, in this case, with those in Philippi, it meant, I'm sorry, with, with those here in Ephesus, it meant baptism. Baptism is according to the baptism of John. They were baptized there. And now they want to identify with the Lord Jesus. And so baptize in His name. As it says in verse um, 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, not in the name of John the Baptist. And maybe the same is for you, right? Maybe you need to be baptized. Do you have faith in Jesus? Faith, trusting in Jesus, says you'll follow in His ways. He says to be baptized. You'll be baptized. If you believe in Christ, you should be baptized. I mean, that, that's what it is. Maybe the Holy Spirit's working in your life, just saying, you know what, I, just, I need to do that. I mean, we've seen this often in the book of Acts. Thousands of the day of Pentecost. Ethiopian eunuch in Gaza. Paul the road to Damascus. Cornelius and his family at Caesarea. Lydia and the, the jailer in Philippi. It's always, they believed and they, they were baptized. I said, I want to follow this Jesus. Not just this way of righteousness. I'm going to follow Jesus and identify completely with him. Well, there's the explanation. They, they believed and they were baptized. In fact, we see that. In verse 6, we see the baptism in verse 6, but I'm also calling it the manifestation. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit, which does exist, came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. 
And there were about 12 men in all. And here we call simply the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit working in the lives of his people, right? Creating fruit and desires. And in this case, the manifestation of the Spirit's tongues. Now, do you know how often the book of Acts speaks about tongues? How many times? More than two. Less than seven. Less than five. Three! <laughs> Almost. Three times. Okay, what are the three times? Tell me, when does it speak about tongues? Acts. Acts 2, Pentecost. Acts 19, that's good. Good job. Acts. Cornelius in chapter 10. Right? So for all this discussion, all this focus in churches oftentimes upon tongues, it's only three times that tongues is even mentioned. And it always has to do with bringing the gospel to a different group of people. In Acts, it was bringing the gospel to the Jews, right? And they're, they're, they're rebellious against the Lord, and now they're believing in the Lord. Tongues, other languages. And in Acts chapter 10, you've got Cornelius, and bringing the Gentiles. So this new group of people, and the tongues coming, right? The, the different languages, sort of like the Spirit, verifying that this is indeed the case. And now in Acts chapter 19, and I, I believe that these are like Old Testament disciples following right the Old Testament, following John the Baptist, now receiving what the Word says and falling in line then with the Word of God and falling in line with a, a belief and trust in Jesus. It's, it's quite astonishing. All the discussion about tongues only three times in the book of Acts. It's always just this transitional sort of times. It's not like we hear about more speaking in tongues in Ephesus. And Paul does deal with that in Corinth when the, the tongues gift was totally corrupted for sure. But I believe this was a language. Because I think that's what tongues are. I think tongues are language that you spoke you don't know. You say, well, what language are they speaking here? I think they're probably speaking Hebrew. Paul knew Hebrew. They didn't know Hebrew. They were Greeks. They're speaking Hebrew. He's understanding Hebrew. Like, wow, this clearly is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit uh, upon their lives. They were speaking in tongues, and they were, were prophesying. And, and you know, they, they're prophesying. They, they knew the Word of God well. They were trained from John the Baptist, so you know, probably the Word of God was being mixed, and somehow they're prophesying, worshiping the Lord, telling of future events, speaking forth strongly. Verse 7 is so interesting. There are only 12 men of them in all. I don't know why Luke adds this for us, but kind of gives more of a picture. Right? Oftentimes you, you talk with a pastor of a church, you know, like about how many go to church? Like I, so I can picture church. We're talking 500? Okay, that's your experience of 500. Well, your experience is 40. Like you just kind of see that and you see Paul's experience here. Only just 12 guys. They're in this little pocket of men who believed and, and trust the Lord. Well, there is. There is a Holy Spirit. Now, I want to transition now to the Lord's Supper um, we're going to celebrate that here this morning. And I just want to think about it in light of the Wesleys. I want to think about that in light of maybe your conversion. I want, I want really to, to press you. It says, you, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he, Paul's talking about the, the Lord's Supper. And, and then he says in chapter 11, verse 28, let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I just want you to just really think and do some soul-searching examination. And, and it may be that we have people here in this auditorium who have gone undetected, who in my mind, as I look about you, I know you, I love you, you know, it's not like I have anyone in mind, like, oh, this person, you know, is really not a believer here. But there may be unbelievers here who've just been going along the way, like Charles and John Wesley, doing life, doing ministry, being involved, being busy, but never really trusting in Jesus Christ. Because that was the issue here in, um, in Acts chapter 19. These people were going along, walking in the ways of the Lord, doing right. Th- in fact, I think their repentance was so minimal, so small, because they were like church people. They were like righteous, following after the law of God. And there may be some of us, as Paul says, let a person examine himself. What a per- perfect time to examine ourselves right here before the Lord's Supper. I, just, I, I know for myself, my own testimony is that, that I walked for years. And I'm not sure if I was a John Wesley or not, but I walked for years just trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, but not understanding that at all until I was 21 years old. And I heard the Bible open and the Bible exposited. And the warning that came that says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven from Matthew chapter 7. And it shocked me because I'd never heard that before. 
And you may be here this morning and just say, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Well, you might be one of these people in Acts chapter 19. And I just encourage you to believe like the Wesleys did. Solely in faith, right? Trusting only in the righteousness of Christ. None of your works. Like, wipe all those out. The works all come as a response to that love. Ephesians 2, verse 10. Right? That God changed us to his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That God created before and that we should walk in them after we're saved by grace. Anything we do, all overflows from that. So examine yourself. Just think, are, are the commandments of God burdensome? Do you find it really burdensome to read his word or to pray? Or, or is that your desire? Do you want to be with God's people? Do you want to commune with God? Do you wish you had more time to, to read the Bible? Do you wish you had more time to be involved and engaged in Christian work? Like that, That's the Spirit of God working in you. This is a perfect time to examine yourself before you eat, drink the bread, the, eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord. Because if he says, verse 27, if to do that in an unworthy manner, you should be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Just if you're trusting in your own works righteousness, it's not what the Lord's Supper is about. The Lord's Supper is about those who are trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone and celebrating that by eating and drinking. So let's, let's pray. Just with your head bowed, I just encourage you even to examine your own heart. Just see whether you are indeed just trusting that justification comes by faith alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, plus nothing. Where the Holy Spirit has genuinely entered your life, where you have different desires today than you had before you were saved. And you may not be able to resolve that right here this morning. As the Wesley brothers took years to resolve that as they first were exposed to it. Maybe this is your storm experience where you're awakened for the first time to realize that I, I may not be prepared to die. That things are well when things are well, but when things are bad, I don't even know if I believe. And maybe this is your storm experience that will set you on course for the next two years to figure it out, how to, how to trust and rest completely on the righteousness of Christ. Like the Wesley brothers had to learn and strive as they did, as they strove to rest. And so, Father, I would pray as we eat this bread and drink this cup, I pray that we would honor you in, in every way, O oh Lord. would pray that your Spirit would come and convict hearts. I pray that your Spirit would come and, and really just testify with our spirits that we are children of God, that we might in good conscience celebrate what you have for us here today. I thank you that you have instituted this as a way we remember the sacrifice of Christ by eating this bread, symbolizing the body of Jesus, and drinking this cup, symbolizing His blood, which is completely shed out and poured for us. God, so in that, oh God, we, we do rejoice. I pray this be a, a unique time of worship we do every four to six weeks at Rock Valley Bible Church to stir our hearts afresh in the things of You. Thank You for Your Word and just for the example we've been thinking about these last two weeks of um, righteous-looking gospel-preaching, unsaved people. God, may it stir us, God, to be true and genuine in our faith through and through. We trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for these things. In whose name we pray, amen.